My name is Mark Walsh. I've been invited to respond to a number of questions about my talk on thromboelastography that I gave for the University of Maryland Critical Care Conference on September 5th at the University of Maryland Shock Trauma Center. I work at Memorial Hospital in South Bend, Indiana, and I have cobbled together this response in between travel, nighttime shifts, and scientific projects with my loyal and trusty research associate medical student, Braxton Fritz. And together, Braxton and I have penned this response as a response to the quote-unquote passionate criticism of the CRASH-2 trial. We have been down the road of mass-produced science before, colon, CRASH-2 is not the trial of the original CRASH trial. Derek Sifford is concerned about my passionate objection to the clinical randomization of an antifibrinolytic in significant hemorrhage or the CRASH-2 trial. For my podcast at the University of Maryland Shock Trauma Center on September 5, 2013, I thank him for the compliment regarding the lecture on the TEG and for his questions which shed light on the trial known as the CRASH-2 trial. Derek accurately identifies one of my concerns as the recruitment of patients based on the uncertainty principle, quote-unquote, whereby the inclusion into a study of patients in mostly low to moderate income developing countries with varying levels of trauma systems depends on the quote-unquote uncertainty of the need of tranexamic acid by the individual physician caring for the patient. That is, those who really needed the drug received the drug, and those who clearly didn't need it did not receive it. This left more than 20,000 patients who may or may not have needed an antifibrinolytic who were randomized. I feel that there are serious problems with the CRASH-2 trial that have been very well delineated by Napolitano and others in the June 2013 issue of the Journal of Trauma. They have analyzed the CRASH-2 trial data carefully and have found major problems with this study. These problems were the following. Number one, only approximately 5% of patients had bleeding as a cause of death. Number two, the CRASH-2 trial approach to randomization includes the wording, quote, doctor is reasonably certain that anti-fibrinolytic agents are indicated or contraindicated. Do not randomize. Three, concern regarding selection bias. Four, no data regarding injury severity of the patient cohort. Five, no data regarding shock in the patient cohort, that is, lactic acid levels and base deficit. And there was inability to determine if the cohorts were similar. Number six, small sample size of hypotensive patients, approximately 32%, and tachycardic patients, 48%, which were the target populations. Number seven, no data regarding fibrinolysis on admission, no coagulation testing. Note that the rate of fibrinolysis at admission in North American trauma centers is approximately 5%. Number eight, the most common cause of death was traumatic brain injury. Number nine, Tranexamic acid did not reduce blood transfusions. 
only 50% of study cohort patients received blood transfusions. Number 10, no adverse effects were regarded as serious, unexpected, or suspected to be related to study treatment. Number 11, there is concern about possible inadequate reporting. And most importantly, number 12, patient follow-up was reported as 100%, and this is difficult to believe. Finally, 13, the effect size was small. The effect was statistically significant, but not a clinically meaningful finding. The study determined a 0.8% absolute reduction in, quote, death caused by bleeding, unquote. Regardless of how large or randomized is this well-funded study, we feel the CRASH-2 trial is a monumentally flawed study with no specific mechanistic rationale. The more applicable and useful study is the military application of tranexamic acid for trauma emergency resuscitation study, or the MATERS trial, M-A-T-T-E-R small s trial which evaluated those patients who clearly needed an antifibrinolytic. In this study, those military trauma patients who needed at least a unit of blood were divided into tranexamic acid or no tranexamic acid arm. Unlike the subtle crash to benefit, the MATTERS results were striking. The number needed to treat was 1 in 7 in the MATTERS trial, while the number needed to treat was 1 in 67 in the CRASH-2 trial. The relative reduction in mortality was a very subtle 1.5%. In the CRASH-2 trial, and the mechanisms for survival remains unclear in this trial since half of the CRASH-2 trial patients did not receive blood. The relative reduction in mortality was 6.7 in the MATTERS trial, and those who received tranexamic acid received less blood products. In the CRASH-2 trial, tranexamic acid patients received the same amount of blood as those who did not receive the drug. The question remains, why include patients who probably will not need blood products into a trial that tests the ability of tranexamic acid to reduce blood product use? Derek Sifford refers to the pre-hospital treatment of acute traumatic coagulopathy and hemorrhage, or capital P-A-T-C-H trial, from the Alfred Trauma Center in Australia as a study that will help clarify practical and mechanistic questions regarding the use of tranexamic acid in trauma resuscitation. The PATCH trial from Melbourne uses criteria that select out hypotensive patients who will probably need blood products based on a seven-point numeric system called the COAST criteria. Most of the patients from this trial will have blood pressures less than 100 millimeters of mercury and have well-documented and significant pelvic and or abdominal injury. One of the stated reasons to perform the PATCH trial is that the results of the CRASH-2 trial may not be applicable to the economically developed countries where patients are treated more quickly. Even the authors of the PATCH trial found the CRASH-2 trial problematic, and as justification for their study, they addressed the same points that Napolitano et al. have delineated. The PATCH authors note, in addition, 
quote, thrombotic complications were reported very rarely in the CRASH-2 study, probably because they were not actively sought in many of the participating hospitals. In contrast, the MATERS study showed that rates of pulmonary embolism and DVTs among patients who received tranexamic acid were respectively 9 and 12 times the rate among those who did not. Scott Weingart refers to the dilemma of the lack of sensitivity to determine fibrinolysis by the TEG. John Greenwood refers to Larson et al., who pointed out that there was a need for a sensitive test which can detect clinically significant fibrinolysis. Both points are true and are summarized very nicely by Sokol and others. TAG Rotem review in the same June 2013 Journal of Trauma issue as Napolitano's excellent review of tranexamic acid use in trauma. Currently, there is experimental work to predict clinically significant fibrinolysis by plasmin antiplasmin levels. Whether the plasmin antiplasmin level is another D-dimer or fibrin split product, both sensitive tests that are of no clinical use in trauma remains to be seen. What still remains is that the TEG Rotem are whole blood coagulation tests that accurately reflect the ability of the blood to clot, and there is nothing else currently available that can replace them at the bedside. At this time, there is no adequate definition of clinically significant fibrinolysis. The range of clinically significant fibrinolysis reported in the literature varies from 15 to 3% of lysis at 30 minutes using the TEG or the ROTEM. Future studies will determine the threshold that is specific and sensitive enough to trigger administration of tranexamic acid for trauma resuscitation. For now, the TEG-ROTEM is all we have to define clinically significant fibrinolysis. Whether the drug is harmless does not justify its administration to patients who do not need it. There must be a proposed mechanism for the drug's effect in trauma. The orthopedic surgeons have found tranexamic acid useful in limiting blood transfusions in elective hip and knee surgery, but not useful for acute fractures because of thrombotic complications. Why are multiple trauma patients different than the orthopedic patients? Rather than follow the quote-unquote Bolshevik science, which is the adjective that I used in my talk to describe this massive government-funded study in a high-income nation that was inflicted on a low-to-middle-income world populace, one might listen to the advice of the above-mentioned analysis by Lena Napolitano, who trained at Maryland Shock Trauma and is the current division chief of acute care surgery, professor of surgery, and associate chair for critical care at the University of Michigan. We have been down this road before with the arbitrary administration of a harmless dose of methoprednisolone to patients with cervical spine injury based on an NIH-funded National Acute Spinal Cord Injury Study, or NASCIS, that was foisted on the emergency physicians of the United States with a pre-publication printed mailing and faxing 
to most emergency physicians' homes or emergency departments in the early 90s. Subsequently, this unfortunately and massively flawed study put methylprednisolone into countless algorithms and guidelines. Much like the CRASH-2 trial, this study was a well-funded government study without mechanistic rationale that described a small and equivocal benefit. Those on methylprednisolone administration had increased complication rates of severe sepsis and severe pneumonia. No amount of pre-publication advertisement of the originally flawed study with the subsequent incorporation of methylprednisolone use into the guidelines for treatment of spinal cord injuries could make the original study actually true. It took a generation of trauma physicians pleading for common sense to expunge this unfortunate study from the scientific community and the societies that represent trauma medicine. Those of us who are driven by a physiologic worldview where a reason must be given for a therapeutic administration of a drug are concerned by the similar confusion that the CRASH-2 trial has wrought on the trauma community. There is a double irony of the CRASH-2 trial in that the first CRASH trial, corticosteroid randomization after significant head injury, exposed the dangers of steroid use in TBI which was encouraged by the NASCIS legitimization of steroid use for trauma-related neurologic injuries. The second irony is that the CRASH-2 trial, tranexamic acid's true advantage, has been mitigated by the fact that those patients who may have needed the drug were not studied and the true benefit of the drug may have been understated. It took the MATTERS trial to describe the true population that would benefit from tranexamic acid. However, the MATTERS study showed that there is real risk of thrombosis in the bleeding patient who might need the drug. Finally, regarding my quote-unquote passionate objection to the CRASH-2 study, the passion is for science, not Bolshevik-like dogma and guidelines imposed on physicians with common sense by government funded research and herds driven by the grant-writing bureaucrats who dole out funding to their willing accomplices in return for grants and prestige. Derek Sifford's response to my concerns about the intellectual inconsistency of the CRASH-2 trial is met with an offhanded comment that he does not have a TEG on his helicopter. No one has or needs a TEG on a helicopter. What one needs is the following common sense, and a rationale for action. Thank you very much.